As I sat on the campus of RCC in Norco, I looked down the aisle at my friend who was rocking back and forth. And as I was watching him and listening to this professor bring his thoughts and his arguments against the Trinity, I knew this was going to be a difficult situation. Other friends were sitting in that same crowd, and as I was listening to this man attempt to dismantle the biblical evidence for the concept of the Trinity, I could feel my heart pounding as I'm trying to think through the issues. Now, I'd looked at his book, and I'd read through the things that he had said, and basically was still standing with the Trinity at that point, but there was a struggle. Another professor came up, introduced to the theology of the Trinity. He was a Biola prof, and so I got more excited, more interested. And in the end, um, while I don't think anybody was convinced one way or the other, um, it, it, I was bummed as some of my friends were sucked more towards that direction away from the faith than towards Christ. And um, those were those moments in which I can just um, feel the weight and the pain of understanding that we will often stand before very dangerous foes while we walk on this adventure of the gospel. In fact, those dangerous foes can often present arguments that are put in such a manner that we begin to think that they're attractive. We actually can't figure out how to argue against them. And for many years, these kind of thoughts and these kind of ideas have actually grown in our society and have captured many Christians and have shaped the church in various directions. So what do we do when we're facing one of those enemies? What do we do when we're facing one of those well-articulated, logical people who's bringing an argument? Well, we're going to look at Paul because he's facing somebody just like that here in Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it up there. Maybe you've already got it open. Or you've got your app, you can go ahead and pull open Acts chapter 24. Now, as we look at this, we want to remember Paul's been arrested and he has just been saved from several different trial scenarios. He wasn't beaten by the, um, by the entire uh, centurions in them. Instead, he was taken before the court and there at the court, a mob started. He got taken out of there. He was saved from 40 men who wanted to kill him by bringing him all the way up into Caesarea. And now he sits with a guy named Felix in, the home, in Herod's Praetorium, which is this large palace on the coast. Now, as he's there, we begin here, um, and Paul is now brought into a trial, a new trial scenario. Verse 1, in five, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and the spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through, uh, through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Dude, this guy is a smooth lawyer. I mean, he knows what he's doing. He is buttering him up and making sure that he's going to listen. Everybody's leaning in like, oh, what you going to say now? And so this guy is well-trained. He understands his rhetoric. He understands what he's up to. And so we pick up as he continues on. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And so we have this situation which the lawyer lays out an accusation. First and foremost, he tries to claim that he stirs up riots, 
Second, that he's kind of the front man of the, of the Christian religion at this point. And that ultimately that he is the guy who's causing all of this stir and has all nearly profaned the temple. Now, as a governor, you're going to sit back and go, this is a troublemaker. This is a guy i got to deal with. We, want, we don't want peace broken in the area. And Tertullus knows it. He sets it up as a political argument. He sets up the faith in a political setting so that it would be attacked in a political sphere. But the situation here is well put together because, man, this guy is smart. He's a dangerous foe. He knows if he can get Felix to listen to him as a troublemaker, as a ringleader, as somebody who's spreading cancer and garbage, as that word um, means when it talks about someone who's a plague, what we have here is a person that's going to put Paul in chains or killed. And we want to understand that we're going to face dangerous foes as we walk on the adventure of the gospel. We're going to face people who are going to have articulate arguments. We're going to try to press in. In fact, we're often facing those foes indirectly. We don't see them right on. You're not actually going to end up fighting the, the very articulate foe. Oftentimes what you'll end up doing is talking to somebody who's picked up their ideas and bringing them to you indirectly. I mean, through the history at least in my life, the original group of people that I was learning to, to talk about the faith with and deal with were Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I mean, they came with the same vocabulary. They came with the same ideas. They were at my school, and we would get in conversations about Christianity, and it sounded so similar. It sounded so familiar. And when I pressed in and began to learn more, and I would ask questions, eventually they would run out of room, and they'd say, well, go ask our bishop. And I'd go ask the bishop, and the bishop couldn't answer the questions. Go ask the elders. And you'd get to the elders, and they would say, well, those are kind of, and on and on it went. And what I began to discover was people only knew so much about what they were talking about. And that they were actually not arguing for their own thing. They were indirectly arguing for their faith. You know, this is true as we've encountered another set of foes. For example, the New Atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, and um, these guys would just sit around and argue that Christianity, like the late Christopher Hitchens, is evil, it's evil, the late, it's all bad and all wrong. And man, they would make arguments, like ev the claim of Christianity only brought evil to this earth, it brought all the, all the woes in the Western world. In fact, it brought ignorance, and science and faith were pitted against each other. They would call Christianity magic talk. You believe a little magic book, and then magic things happen. And this is the way they would present it. And they would set arguments, and they would lay them out. And it took Christians like uh, William Lane Craig and others to rise up to refute these arguments. And nowadays, people don't know those arguments are refuted, but you still run into them. You're still going to meet people who are listening to Sam Harris's podcast, or you're still listening to people who are going to repeat arguments they heard on Facebook or on YouTube or you name it. And so we're dealing with these very powerful foes indirectly. One of those major indirect foes right now is, is called the progressive Christian movement. Progressive Christian movement's been around. It once, it's kind of, kind of evolved itself forward, but it's, it's one of the more modern moves that's going on. In fact, a lady named Elisa Childers has been uh, putting out podcasts for now a few years, kind of showing an, uh, the alarm, sounding the alarm of what has been going on. A lot of people have noticed this, and she, um, just as she has engaged it, she kind of laid out several different ways to tell. And these are the kind of things that we need to, we need to be aware of. Because if you're not aware of your foe, if you're not aware of their arguments, we're often prone to fall into them. For example, um, the progressive Christian movement likes to lower the view of the Bible. 
They don't view it, they say it's inspired, but it's inspired like any good Christian songs inspired. Not that God actually inspired the words, that these are the words of God, that they're called to our lives and we must commit ourselves to them and interpret them and they, inter and they tell us how to live. You know, the, some have uh, actually emphasized feelings over facts. They will actually say that what you feel is the reality, but the facts themselves aren't unimportant. And yet what we would say is the facts are what you're feeling about. The facts are here and you may have a wrong interpretation and your feelings are off. And so the Bible actually claims that you can control your feelings and shape your feelings. For example, it tells you to, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's a control of your feelings. It's a command. And what we have is an interesting situation where God says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a command to actually motivate your feelings, to move them. And so another one, she says, they often reinterpret classical Christian doctrines. Hell has become a place that isn't of eternal you know, duration. It's just kind of a place you go to and eventually you burn up in a crisp and you go away. You don't exist anymore. Or we've redefined sin to not include certain sexual habits or to include certain desires. But instead, sin is, is found in certain categories over here. And they've renamed those um, when for us, sin would be any evil desire that's contrary to the Word of God, right? And then we get historical terms that have been redefined, and we end up with um, the heart of the gospel going from a sin and necessity of redemption to be right with God to a need to fix the world and its social problems. Now, we still believe in fixing social problems, but that's not the center of the gospel. The center of the gospel is being right with God. Once you've been transformed, now you have the apparatus within you through the Spirit of God to make the difference in the world. And so these subtle shifts while bending and leaning on certain truths are things we need to be aware of. And they're often found right now being pressed out there. And if we don't know what the foe is saying, if we don't know what these dangerous uh, arguments are being made, we won't know how to respond or react to them, which means we need to know our theology. Now, before we get into that, though, I just want you to not be surprised, right? Oftentimes we feel like all these things are new situations. All this stuff that is attacking Christianity, all these new foes are showing up. It's like, this has never been done before. It's, this is the history of the church. And that's what we're seeing right here. Paul is facing this kind of a foe, and he's faced many of them. He's gone over and over and over again, engaging with people who are against him. But Paul is going to do one thing. He's going to lean on the Word of God. He's going to lean on the promise that he's been given him. Even though this foe is going to stand there and, and nearly get him locked up, I believe he's sitting there remembering that that night in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, that it says that following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. You must testify also in Rome. He knew he was going to Rome. And I think this gave Paul the confidence to hang in there, to keep going. Lean on the word of God when you begin to face these various foes and get into the word. That will help you and ground you. It will lean you forward. Now, we also see, though, that we got to be ready to give a defense of our faith. You can't just you know, stand there and, and just expect that God's going to suddenly import massive amounts of information if you're facing a new atheist or you're dealing with progressive Christianity or even Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, or whatever. No, there's a sense that you need to be ready. You need to have prepared yourself. I mean, this is what Peter calls us to in his letter. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of those who are persecuting you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, put him, set him apart. Be the one that you're willing to defend. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We don't do it as jerks. We don't be mean. 
we stand firm, kindly placing those truths out. And this is what Paul does. In fact, notice as he begins to engage here in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it was not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Now, I love this. What Paul is doing here is he's actually engaging in his defense. And he sticks with the facts. He sits with the facts that can be confirmed. Notice again what he says. He's like, look, I, you can verify it's not been more than 12 days since I came into the city. You can verify that I wasn't stirring up a crowd. Uh, you can verify I was being cleansed. He says, all this information is like, these are the facts. You can go ask people. They know what I was doing. Go look for them. It, and facts are important when we get into a conversation about defense. When somebody's going to attack your faith, when somebody's going to put you in a position to try to tell you why your faith isn't real, what's wrong with what you believe, then you know what? You need to lean on the facts at that point. You need to be prepared with answers of like, well, actually, I do believe that science and Christianity go together. Well, what are the facts? And you need to be ready for that kind of a conversation. When somebody goes, you know what, I think that uh, Joseph Smith was a prophet and here's the reasons why. You need to be ready with some information for some facts. When you have somebody come up with you and tell you that, you know, the way that we feel is actually the most true thing that, about the reality, you need to be able to show the scriptures and come up with the facts about things. Now, what's important is then that you should have the opportunity to have already studied some of those. And if you're looking for a way to begin to develop this habit, I want to encourage you to check out Right Now Media. J. Warner Wallace has an awesome thing called The Forensic Faith. And you can watch the whole thing right there. He has a book on it. And it will help, to help, it'll help you begin to put together answers and preparation as you engage on this gospel adventure. We need to be ready with a defense, which means we need to begin to study the facts and begin to engage. Now, it's also important, however, to have them confirm their facts. Here's the thing that will often happen. Oftentimes we take the defense so much that we forget that we can simply ask them a, a simple question. Huh, well, where'd you get that? That's an interesting thought. You know, I have a question about that. Where, wh where did you believe that from? Or, you know, you can engage in this tactic in which you begin to ask them questions and make them prove their case. In fact, when people have taken our Share Keystone class, they've invited to go out and interview somebody who is an atheist or of a different religion or, or a secularist or something like that. And oftentimes they'll sit down with them. And as they interview them, they ask just three or four questions and eventually people start to be confused. They don't know how to defend what they believe. They don't even quite know why they believe it a lot of times because they've never had to go that far into their belief system. And this is important because we need to be ready to answer and we need to be ready to ask them to answer. And this is part of that engagement. And one more important thing that I want you to note in here, Paul doesn't take any of these accusations personally. He doesn't. In fact, he's just been called a rioter. He has just been called somebody who is, in all these cases, somebody who is evil and destroying the world, right? And he's like, you know what? That's not true. Here are the facts. Do, 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 do. And just kind of lays them out. It's incredible because, I'll be honest, when somebody attacks you personally, it is hard to put your emotions down. It is hard to set them aside. And even in the middle of it, if you've already started and then it just creeps back in, this is about self-control. It's not easy. 
and know we're going to fail. And God is gracious, but we'll get so much further if we remain calm, give a calm answer, reply back, because it may be personal, but in this case, if it's about the gospel, it's about, then it's about Jesus. And just remember, they're not attacking you, they're attacking Jesus when it's about the gospel. And so we want to take that in and understand, this is Paul's response. He's ready in this defense. And so he continues in verse 14. But, I, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And this is interesting. See, he uses this opportunity in the middle of this conversation to actually bring up the faith. He is placing a positive portrayal, saying, hey, look, I, I walk in the law. I'm doing these things according to law. I hope in the resurrection. They hope in the resurrection. And this is critical. Whenever you're engaged with somebody who is bringing up an argument, trying to put you in a corner, trying to accuse you of something in the case of the gospel, what I want you to do is take a step back and ask yourself, where is the bridge? What do they believe? And I believe. And then how can I link those to the scriptures? Because there is a belief in the scripture they may be rejecting, but they have a similar belief in their idea. If you can begin to look for these things, it brings a link together. Let me give you an illustration. Last week, there was a young man who came to our services early. And while I was sitting talking to him, I, he told me that all his stuff had just been stolen and all these kind of things had happened to him. And I was just like, it was an awful story. And I asked him what he thought about Christianity. And we began to engage a conversation about the gospel. And I, I leaned into him. I said, you know, you're made in the image of God. You're valuable. You know, I kind of went through this whole thing. And then I explained the image of God like a pair of, like God giving us his ID. And that when somebody steals your ID and misuses it and you go to jail for it, man, he was getting angry. He was getting all frustrated because this is roughly what had happened to him. And suddenly I flipped it on him and said, and that's what sin is. You see, when we go and we lie, we represent God as a liar. When we go and we act in a manner that is unbecoming, we, we, we show God to be that way. We misuse his ID. And just like you were mad, don't you think God would be mad? And man, it was such a simple segue then into the gospel. Because what I did is took some idea that he was holding and connected it to the truth, and that bridge helped him cross over into understanding. Paul's doing the same thing. Literally saying, hey, this is the law and the prophets, and we believe in the resurrection, and he's setting it up. He's aiming at the message of Jesus. Verse 16, then, he picks up. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be the ones who are here um, before you to make this accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men say, the, say uh, that the wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. And so he's, we'll stop here for a second. What's interesting is that he is pointing to those who have the real problem. Oftentimes, what you will receive from people are their parroted arguments. Like I said, it's an indirect attack. They've listened to Sam Harris, or they've listened to this person on this podcast, or they listened to this person on YouTube, or they had this professor back here. And so they bring up these arguments that aren't their arguments. They've grabbed hold of them, but the argument really is with someone else. Paul here is like, look, guys, 
you're, these guys aren't arguing with me. They didn't actually find anything wrong with me. The real guys are these guys I knew from Ephesus. They're the ones who accused me. They should be here. And so what's interesting then is if, oftentimes it's great to actually go back to the source. If you want to argue with somebody, just go, okay, hey, I see that. Where'd you get that idea from? That's interesting. Why does that convince you? What about that? And so you, and, well, let's go look that up. Let's go find somebody. And you can often find debates where strong Christian apologists, philosophers, or, or theologians have debated these people and brought answers to their questions and shown these things off. In fact, um, Greg Kogel is one of those guys who does this quite often, and, and he offers a book to help us as we engage in these conversations and how to ask right questions. And it's a book called Tactics. Now, Tactics is pretty incredible. It gives you the opportunity to actually know kind of how to navigate and practice these kind of conversations so that when you engage, one, you give them something to think about, and two, you don't be a jerk. And that's exactly what Peter calls us to. It's exactly what Paul's doing here. He is literally learning, he's using these tactics of, you know, that's interesting. Where are the guys who actually have the real argument? Let's go look that up. Let's go find out if what they're saying is actually true. And when we do that, we take it away from a personal argument, and we take it to somebody else's argument, and now there's an opportunity for us to evaluate it together versus it being something that, ah, gotcha, that's not a fight. We are guiding people and hopefully leading them to an understanding of the faith. Now, ultimately, they, Paul concludes. He says, look, when I stood before the council, I, I didn't do any wrongdoing. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I love that Paul keeps bringing up the resurrection. Why? Guys, that's what Christianity is about. It's about Easter. It's about that Resurrection Sunday. It's about resurrection. It's about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, right? If that didn't happen, none of this is true. Why do I trust Jesus so much? He rose from the dead. Why do I believe in the Old Testament? Because Jesus trusted the Old Testament was the Word of God. So I trust Jesus. He rose from the dead. If, there, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, none of the promises we've received, we think we've received are true. And so we need to get back to the resurrection. We need to help people focus in on that historical event. Because that's powerful. All the other religions offer you a philosophy. Christianity offers you a promise rooted in history. You see, in history, Jesus rose from the dead. In history, these things happen. They won't be changed. And so our promise is true from God, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul keeps bringing it back to that resurrection because that is his fixation. That's his focus, man. It is about the resurrection of Christ. Now, Felix doesn't bite on any side. In fact, he plays a good politician. Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he put them off saying, well, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, eh, I'll decide your case. Who basically punts, right? I'll give you another shot later. Hey, that's a great option. I just tell you, sometimes you'll get into a conversation with somebody who's not really ready to go all the way in that conversation, and they're like, maybe we'll talk about this another time. Say, great. Let's set up a date. Let's figure it out. Let's get together. Let's go to coffee. Let's make this happen. Take the opportunity for a second conversation. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. And so another opportunity is a win. That's kind of what Paul gets here. Now, with all this said, Paul will get several more opportunities. And what he shows us in this next section is that we must seek to lead others to faith with intelligence. We need to use our smarts and our understanding 
We should be people who know logic. We should be people who know the facts. We should be people who are laying these things out. Because here's the case. We're going to engage people who are thinkers as well. In fact, in this case, he's engaging this Felix. And it says in verse 23, Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was who Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about the righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Hmm. Said, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. So he wants another opportunity. Again, what's interesting, because Drusilla and Felix are an interesting pair. In the background of history, what you find out about these two is that Drusilla literally was somebody who once was married to another man, another king. This other king had actually become Jewish to marry Drusilla because she was of the lineage of Herod. Well, she didn't really kind of like her arrangements, apparently, but thought Felix was the man, right? So she basically throws her husband out, runs after this pagan Felix who literally worships false gods, is a brutal tyrant, all because, man, he had the hots for her and she wanted the power. And, and all this breaks all kinds of Jewish law, obviously, and ethical law. It's a mess. And Paul walks right into it. I mean, he is unafraid to bring the problem up so he can get to the gospel. Notice what he does here. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Three things that Drusilla and Felix needed to think about. They had no self-control. They weren't very righteous. And the judgment day was going to be probably pretty bad. And this is why it's so important not to drop the concept of judgment in our conversations. This is the part that helps us see that we need Christ. There was a missionary that I once heard about who when he would meet somebody who, was a who had claimed they were a Christian, his first question to them was, oh, when did you accept that you were a sinner destined for hell? Isn't that the case? If you're truly a Christian, you're going to have to have accepted that in, you are worthy of only hell because of your sin. And it is that very desire to not go there, that very desire to be connected with God, that suddenly you're like, I need somebody to bear my sin. I need Jesus. I need to be transformed. I don't want to be this broken person anymore. I want to be transformed. I want to be like Christ. God, you love me even though I'm broken and messed up like this. You love me even though I should be going to hell. You love me. It is such a beautiful question because what it does is it reveals to us that we understand that there was a coming judgment. Now, there are some people who understand it, but they reject it. They'll walk away going, forget that. I don't need the concept of hell. I don't even need that concept of God. And off they go in their own journey. That's pretty much what Drusilla and Felix were going to do even though they were confronted, and that confrontation brings transformation, as we've shown, even though they were confronted, they rejected it. Now, also note that he didn't just, like, dig into them. He used reason. I mean, he was literally trying to put it from the scriptures, put it into logic to show them that this is important. I think that's what frightened them so much, that there wasn't arguing with them that these things were wrong. It wasn't something they could argue with, that there wasn't a day in which God needs to bring justice because if he doesn't, everything's gonna, everybody's going to get away with everything. And suddenly when he starts winding it in, it, it starts tightening down. They're freaked out. They're like, get away from us. We're done. And, and they pushed him out. And so they weren't going to engage anymore. Now, 
Paul doesn't ever convert him as we see. In verse 26, we finally finish it off in this way. It says, at the same time, he, Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he keeps bringing Paul back in because you know what he really wants is, is a little greased palm there, right? So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to, um, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Nice guy. Let's hang out for a couple years. Man, I don't like you that much. You didn't give me any money. You're staying here. Paul wasn't going to compromise on his integrity in order to try to convert him, in order to try to change things. In fact, Paul wanted the case to be the case. He wasn't going to waffle and moo. He wanted to sit there. I find his courage. I find his integrity amazing. Because in the middle of difficult situations, when you're faced with somebody who's a dangerous foe with very dangerous arguments, it's hard sometimes out of our compassion. It is hard sometimes out of our care for people to hold with the scripture. And you know what? I get it. You can get confused. You can get like, I don't even know this stuff. That's why I want to encourage you on this gospel adventure to become a student of the word of God, to become a student of why we believe what we believe. And to know what you believe and to be able to articulate it to other people because it's in that way that we begin to move forward. Take up some of these resources. Connect in some of these ways because when you hit there, it will begin to aid you and it will shape you. I think I praise God every year at some point for the fact that my friend Steve confronted me over and over and over with every question he could possibly think of when I first became a Christian. Because he forced me into thinking and being logical in an attempt to see him come to know Jesus, I wanted to answer his questions. And it shaped me and it formed me into being confident about my faith in Jesus Christ and not fearful that one day I'm going to run into something that I don't know how to answer and maybe my faith is going to fall apart. When you're out there on that gospel adventure, I want to encourage you. Know why you believe what you believe. Be ready with the defense because you're going to meet people directly or indirectly, we're going to challenge you. And if they do, I hope that you're ready. I want to pray that you are. Would you bow your heads with me? God, would you please aid us as we become a people who are engaging with the message of Jesus, that you would help us be ready with the defense, help us with the tactics that we need, help us not to take things personally, but instead to stand firm in the faith and God to engage in such a manner that you would be glorified. Thank you for the opportunities that you've given us to be challenged. Help it shape us because we are ready. We're ready, God, to get out there and to engage. We ask that you would enable us in the name of Jesus. Amen.